The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, late last year, we started getting some indications from the Nigerian federal government that they had had enough of illegal gold mining and illegal mining in general. Last November, the federal government announced that it was going to create special courts to handle illegal mining cases. In fact, the Minister of State for Mines and Steel Development, he said he's had enough and he's going to crack down. This is a quote from him uh, last November. Once this court is established, if you are caught engaging in illegal mining, there will be no fine. Anybody that is caught will be sent to prison. Then, in January, just a couple months later, uh, we heard another indication from a senior official, Fran Odum, uh, who's with the Federal Ministry of Mines and Steel. Uh, she told the Premium Times newspaper that illegal mining activities are, quote, killing Nigeria's economy and environment. She said that the government has set up special mining and surveillance teams that will go into the forest in different states to monitor those who are behind illegal mining activities. And they started back in January and February to do some of those joint task force. And we started in the spring now to see the impact of that. In particular, a whole array of Chinese were arrested, mostly in Osun state. So on April 27th, two Chinese nationals were arrested in Zamfara state for illegal mining. Then a week later, there was a joint task force raid in Osun, uh, where 27 illegal gold miners, 17 were Chinese nationals. Uh, then two weeks later, on around May 20th, a joint task force raided another mining site in Osun and arrested 10 Chinese. So we're up to about 30 Chinese now. And they also arrested uh, some Ghanaians and three locals as well. And then in July, three Chinese nationals were arrested again by the joint task force in Osun state. So, Kobus, it does seem like that, I mean, again, it's hard to tell if these state raids are a result of the federal government action, but it does seem to be that people in Nigeria and the government in particular are fed up with illegal gold mining. Yes, I think this is also a story that's been gaining speed over several years because we saw um, Ghana cracking down on illegal gold mining also involving Chinese expatriates um, a few years before. So this is something that is clearly in the minds of, of West African governments um, and something that that's, I think also enjoys a lot of political will. And we also have to consider the fact that now during this COVID-19 era that we're in, uh, when the economy has been disrupted, illegal gold mining is a very, very big drain on the economy, but it's also an environmental issue. And so the government isn't only responding to the mining issues, they're also looking into the ecological consequences of what Chinese mining companies are doing. On July 7th, the Nigerian news site The Cable published an absolutely fascinating investigative report on how a Chinese mining company named Hong Ao is polluting local water sources in the federal capital territory near Abuja and doing so with the protection of local police. And what's interesting then is a week later, that story sparked a response from the federal government and an eight-member team from the Nigeria Integrated Water Resource Management Commission went down to look into the situation. 
unbelievable, number one, to see that the story was happening with the protection of the police, but at the same time to show what good journalism can do in terms of sparking a response. And the story was written by Chinedu Asadu, who's a staff writer at The Cable, and he joins us on the line. Welcome to the show for the first time, Chinedu. We really appreciate you taking the time to speak with us. Hi, Eric. Thanks for having me. It's really our pleasure, and congratulations on publishing a really fascinating investigative report, uh, an investigative report that got a response, no doubt. Let's start our discussion with you kind of just telling us a little bit about what was happening uh, with the Hong Ao Mining Company in the FCT, that's the Federal Capital Territory. What did you find in your investigation? Okay, so um, I started investigating that story late last year, and um from interviews with residents, we learned that the company is mining gold, you know, in that community. And they are using the only source of water that is serving the community for their operation. So they're using the water to wash the minerals they extracted from the ground. And unfortunately, that's the water the community drinks. That's the water the community uses to cook. They are predominantly farmers, you know. So it's going to, it's, it was posing a very big challenge for them. So they had to now source for alternative water supply. Some of them had to trek kilometers to find alternative water supply. So all their cries to the government and to the relevant agencies, there were no efforts to address their challenges. So when we got wind of the invest- of the story, so I had to go there. It's a very, very far remote, you know, very far in a very far area, the remote community. So we found out that indeed these guys are there, you know, with the aid of police men, you know, on ground, about five policemen on ground, the one of the days I visited, and they are protecting them. So the outsiders can't even have you know a view of what's happening on the ground there so they already have they've compensated the person they're using their plot of land for the operation they just gave him about two million naira that's just not up to five thousand dollars or thereabouts you know just for the operation but for the community generally that water is serving about six other communities in that area you know and no compensation they've been there they started the operation in november december last year you know so it's like seven months to when my publication was out and a series of complaints made by that community that okay they promised them they're going to dig boho for them when they started and six seven months into the operation no boho is functional there so whenever they complain to these guys it was as if they've bribed some persons you know money has exchanged hands so nobody is giving a damn about the community so they had to now stop using that water a couple of them are still using it anyway so you mentioned that um that in in your article you mentioned that you had to do undercover work and you actually had to like hide yourself from from armed guards i wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about that okay so you know where the play, where the mining site is located, it's um it's a very remote area. So and the road leading there, there it's always prone to kidnappers. And then at the site, you have armed policemen on guard. You understand? And they also have some of the villagers they employed to just secure the area. So and it's just in a very thick forest. So. In the course of my visits, we have to make sure that these people don't sight us. They, you know, so you have to sometimes you have to crawl through the bushes, and you know you don't know if there are cameras around because it's a very secret operation. So if you're not aware of the operation there, unless you hear the sound of the machine, there's no way you'd know that there's something going on there. You understand? So we have to ve- take very serious precautions. And most of the time, you have to lay on the ground. You know, like you ju- you don't just stand and walk through the bushes. So you have to just crawl to make sure that nobody is seeing. You understand? And it was a very risky situation because there, if anything happens to you, nobody knows. You know, it's a very very remote area, and the guards are there. Of course, they are watching. Most of the villagers, those that they've been paid to secure the place you understand so they they can also inform them see there's some persons 
watching here or asking questions. So you had to take serious precautions. So it was as if it was a covert operation, you know. But I only visited there in the open when I tried to pose as a prospective gold miner. That was when I met some of their employees, some of their laborers. So in the course of our interaction, the laborer was now telling us, see, we get some, some amount of gold here, up to one kilogram of gold, you understand? So valued at over one million over 100 million naira in a day and these guys can't provide just a boho for the community so it was only then that i had to blow up my identity but from other visits we had to crawl through the forest because we had to make sure that the security agencies don't cite us the policemen on ground there don't cite us and the villagers in their employ that they pay, pay to protect the area you know they also don't cite us because if anything happens to you there nobody is even going to hear because of very far how the place is located yeah, and you also have, as you mentioned, you have to worry about kidnappers as well. Question, was this was this an illegal mining operation or an illegal mining one? So was Hong out there with permits and licenses? Okay, so this is it. Um, the community members we spoke to and from our checks at the federal government agencies, you know, we were able to find out that these guys, they have an exploration license. So before you start mining, you first of all get an exploration license that would enable you to extract minerals and if at the end of the day you want to do large-scale mining you have to now process another application you know at the relevant ministries to get your mining lease you know but the, the guys there the, the hongao company they only have an exploration license you know so they are claiming that they've not started mining they've not started large-scale mining that they are still trying to explore the area with the license they have you understand but from what we found there we're able to see that this there's no way this is still exploration you know because i spoke to some other actors in the industry you know i spoke to some some um some organizations some you know some actors some csos too and some lawyers that are involved in this kind of operation and they told me that with the machines these guys are operating with there's no way they are exploring minerals with this machine that it's obviously explore you know extraction like full-scale mining going on there i'm sorry just just so we're clear they had an exploration license but that exploration license doesn't allow them to do actual extraction and process so in that sense, your suspicion is that they were illegal, illegally operating this mine, from what you were, what you could see. Exactly, exactly. So that was why I had to you know, pose as a prospective buyer. And from my interaction with the laborers there, they told us because they didn't know that I was a journalist. They thought this is just some guy trying to buy gold. So he detailed the process, how the machines operate, the amount of gold they get there daily and the amount of money they get and all of that how he also makes money from the gold they get but the problem is that we weren't able to trace how the gold they get the, you know the the process it's going through you know who buys it from where they expose it to and that's largely because of the police protection they are having so even while i was going there i had to be careful you know not to blow up my cover it's not a place that you can go and get involved or maybe get employed by them you know because there are also some kind of restrictions there you understand but from what we saw on ground there it was obvious that they are carrying out large-scale mining which the license they have does not permit them to so um what is the what what would the community like to have like in, in your article you mentioned that they that they're very unhappy that they that um you know the company didn't provide them with a borehole um you know to 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 make up for the water that they lost through the river but it seems to me that if large-scale mining is going on then the groundwater there's a danger of the groundwater being polluted as well um so so you know kind of would a, a borehole actually make the community happy or what actually would they want in the larger scheme so when they started the operation, part of the arguments they had is that 
they are going to dig a borehole for them because the community knows already that this is probably going to contaminate our water. The mining site is just a walking distance to the path that the stream runs across. That's the stream serving the community. So the borehole is supposed to be a kind of compensation. But then at the end of the day, they discover that the damage we envisage is even much more than what's happening now. You understand? So we find out that the water, they had to divert the water from the stream. So why they are using the water to wash the minerals they extracted? When, when they wash this mineral, the water flows back to that stream. And that is what's flowing through to like six other communities. So the borehole is supposed to be a kind of compensation initially from the agreement they made. And then the Nigerian law, there is the Nigerian Mining Act. It provides that on no ground should you contaminate any source of water be it underground water or whatever you know why carrying out any mining related operation you understand so and if that happens there must be an alternative water supply provided for those people because at the end of the day the affected population will still be using the water that is contaminated so number one here there is an agreement that they are going to dig borehole for them they fail to drill that borehole number two they breach the law which says that you, sh you cannot contaminate and a natural water supply that is in a place where you're carrying out any mining related activity and they contaminated that water and failed to provide any source of water alternative water supply for them so there are two acts of illegality support for this podcast comes from the africa channel reporting project at Wits university school of journalism in johannesburg the acrp provides reporting grants workshops and other professional development opportunities for both african and chinese journalists Follow the ACRP on Twitter at VitsChinaAfrica or visit africachinareporting.co.za for information about grants and upcoming seminars. You know, at the beginning of the show, I, I made a list of all of the crackdowns that have happened in this spring against illegal Chinese gold miners. Then your story came out uh, from the FCT, the Federal Capital Territory, and and it makes me wonder how widespread is illegal Chinese gold mining? Are these exceptional cases or is it very common? Did you Have you found that out in your reporting to see just what is the scope of Chinese illegal gold mining in Nigeria? Before I did that report, we've had some other similar reports, you know, part of which I've been involved in. But after I did that report, some persons reached out to me and we found out that it's even almost like a norm because the sad trend is that in Nigeria, there is this um, kind of feeling that we are, indebted to the, to the Chinese, you know, because of the large number of, because of the huge amount of loans we owe the Chinese government. So they get away with a lot of things. And mining is one of the, in, one of the sectors that they get involved in. And by the time they're able to just compromise a few authorities, nobody's going to prosecute them or do whatever they want. You understand? So the government often just comes to announce that we've made some arrests, but we've, you know, we've got some persons, but there's almost no prosecution going on. You understand? This is not the first time the government is announcing some arrests. So it's like we are indebted to the Chinese government. Can I stop you there really quickly? The, I, I don't understand the connection between the debt and the mining. The Nigerian Debt Management Office two months ago released report that said basically only 3.94% of Nigeria's total public debt is owed to the Chinese. So the Nigerians actually don't owe the Chinese that much money. So it's not just the debt. It's not just in the area of the loans that we're getting from the Chinese. You understand? You know, the China, if you look at our exports, China is one of the, like, the top countries that we're exporting our solid minerals in. You know, they are like the top three. Talking about gold and iron and other valued solid minerals, you understand? So there's that very strong partnership within the, between the Nigerian government and, you know, the Chinese government. So there are lots of also informal relationships, not just in the area of debts or loans, you understand? So there is this kind of, you know, cooperation between the 
Chinese companies, you know, and the agencies, and then the relevant ministry. So it's as if if you are able to compromise this person, if you are able to just get the support of this particular person, you understand that nobody is going to do anything, with, you know, about you. Because when I after I wrote that story, I got about three complaints from some other residents, you know, across Nigeria, and then somebody was telling me that there's his community, you know, these guys are mining gold there too, not just very far from Abuja, you understand, and then there. The commissioner of police has been petitioned, you understand? The police authorities have been petitioned, but they told them that they can't do anything about it, that it seems the policemen working with them there, it's from the powers from above. So it's not even them, the state command that deployed the police, you understand? So most often, you find out that it's not a case that you can handle it. There is always a higher power, there is always a higher authority that is proceeding over that case. So you just, and you can't, of course, act without others, you understand? So it's as if often, most often, you know, they get away with some of these things. So who do you hold responsible here? On the one hand, is it the fact that the Chinese are doing this illegally, polluting the water supply in these mines, and then not... Uh, registering their minds and taking advantage of loopholes in the law, those that is they should be accountable for that. But it sounds like also there's a big governance problem. There's the police who are taking bribes. There are government who are not enforcing the laws. That you've talked about the mining laws. There may be a lot of great laws on the books, but if they're not being enforced, then what's the point? And so if we have a question of corruption or lack of good government or all of that, where does accountability lie? for this situation in your view? So the bulk of the responsibility and accountability lies, you know, on the hands of the government, you know, because it's, I don't see a scenario where a Chinese or, a, or where a Chinese company just walks straight into a remote area, you know, and starts carrying out its operation without having the support of at least some government at the levels. It's not just the federal government, there is state government, there are local government, so there are three tiers of government. So it's just like a Nigerian going somewhere in, 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 in China, you understand, and then starting up an illegal company in one of the remote towns, you know, maybe in, in Shanghai or something. So it's almost not possible. There has to be some kind of connivance, you understand. So in the end of the day, you see that there are authorities, most of the authorities that are supposed to be there to implement the provisions of the law in place, they are the ones turning the blind eye on them, you understand. And so have you heard anything from the the Water Commission, about the follow-up investigation that they did and the eight-member team that came down, do you think anything will come of that? And will this Chinese gold mine, Hongao Mining Company, face any consequences for what they have apparently done? Yes, so I spoke with um, one of the te- one of the members of the team that went there. You know, and un- I understood that the day they visited, you know, some of the Chinese workers saw them and ran away. You understand? So currently, I think they are trying to get the management, you know, to interrogate them because as they escaped, they weren't able to reach them. But I sent them their office um, details, their contact address, general, and they- I spoke with them on Thursday. You know, that's barely forty-eight hours ago. And from my understanding, that's, uh, sorry, on Saturday. So they told me that they invited the management already, the company. And they're also speaking with the traditional rulers in that community, you understand? So they have have to, first of all, establish that this is a breach of the agreement, you understand? And they're also going to carry out their own analysis to make sure that that water is contaminated. Of course, there are penalties, and I'm very hopeful about that. The article is how Chinese miners endangering FCT, that's the Federal Capital Territory, residents enjoy police protection. It was an investigative report on the cable news site uh, written by Chinedu Asadu, who joins us on the line for the first time. Congratulations on an excellent report. It's really been great to hear from you and behind the scenes and that you actually, you know, we're just so glad that you 
uh, were able to stay safe during this, what was apparently a very dangerous process to, to look into this story. And it really shows you the importance of great journalism. Uh, Chinedu, if people want to follow you and stay on top of all the reading and writing that you're doing these days, what's the best way for them to connect with you? Okay, so Eric, thanks. For, first of all, thanks again for having me here. I can always be reached via Twitter, you know, at Chinedu underscore Asado. Or via email address, you know, Chinedu Asado, that's C-H-I-N-E-D-U, A-S-A-D-U, 22 at gmail.com. So that's easily the best way to reach me. And thanks again for having me. I'm very glad I get the opportunity to talk about this very important story. Kobus, I said this repeatedly throughout the show, how impressed I was with Chinedu's reporting. And I think it highlights what is really underappreciated in many parts of Africa about the quality of investigative journalism. And there's a new generation of journalists who are using multimedia tools the way that Chinedu was doing. And it's just, it, 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 it goes without saying. And I really feel that, it, you know, there's been some great investigative reports out of the Daily Nation in Kenya, now seeing out of the cable. And I just, it gives me a lot of hope for, uh, for the future in terms of the quality of news coming out of many African publications and news sites. That being said, I don't know how I feel about this story, and I'm struggling to get my head around where this accountability question lies. And again, it goes back to this governance issue that we've talked about for years on the program. That is, this doesn't happen in Sweden and Singapore, and it seems like the Chinese are very good at adapting their level of compliance to whatever the local conditions tolerate. So in Nigeria, where it's possible, as we heard from Chinedu, to pay off the police and to pay off, uh, you know, other various government officials, you can get away with pretty much everything. And again, you couldn't do that in Singapore. And so does accountability lie with the Chinese? And should the Chinese embassy and the Chinese government do more to police its own nationals who are in Nigeria? Or is it the burden of the local government, the state government, and the federal government to enforce its own immigration laws and mining laws. What do you think? I think it's both. You know, it has to be both. And because, you know, if, if the one doesn't happen, the other one doesn't happen either. Um, and what we see frequently in Africa is that the only way that, that governments are compelled to, to do this job is when they get a lot of noise from communities. And particularly, you know, kind of there's, there's an old old <laughs> saying in South Africa is that, that the only thing that governments can hear is smoke, i.e., you know, kind of, you know, if, if, if people burn things on the highway, then the government listens. Um, and, you know, so, so I think... Yeah, you know, kind of. I think this this is a problem. This is what we're talking about when we when we mention that there's a lack of trust between African African populations and African governments. This this is what we mean. Well, there's definitely something going on here because the number of raids that have happened just this year alone that have netted dozens and dozens of Chinese illegal miners. Uh, it's fueling this sentiment too in in Nigerian civil society of this growing frustration because you have to put that in the context of everything we saw regarding Guangzhou, a lot of the debt issues, the Nigerian House of Representatives was bringing up uh, proposals to look at every loan for the past 20 years. There was, so there's a lot of tension on the civil society part. And when these arrests of the Chinese illegal miners come into the news mix, it, it kind of fuels that and it adds to it a lot. Interestingly, the Chinese embassy doesn't comment on any of these things. Uh, not surprisingly, they don't really, uh, but it is a, one of the, the factors to consider in all of this. It'll be interesting to see if this continues beyond the spring. So over the past few months, we haven't seen as many arrests as we saw in April and May. Uh, so was this just a one-time thing to try and scare people? And then they go back down and everything goes back to normal? Or will the federal government and the state joint task force continue their raids on the mining sector? 
I want to go back to this question of COVID-19 because I also think that plays a part in it. And it may not play a part in the, you know, I'm trying to find the right word here, in, in the kind of above board way of it. So that is, the mining sector has been hit hard by the disruption in the global supply chain. So people who are normally getting paid and everything was going well, they didn't mine these illegal miners who were there. But now... Prices are low. It's harder to make money from this. And so there are powerful forces who might be squeezing the illegal miners simply because there's just less money in the marketplace. And I'm wondering if this is all of this is part of the disruptions that we're seeing related to COVID-19. Again, that's pure speculation, but it just feels like, you know. Yeah, it, it, you know, it, it, we, we don't have proof for it, but it looks it looks like it makes sense. Um, you know, so we, we're going to have to keep an eye out and see how, how it, it lands, not only in terms of mining, but also I think we're already seeing indications that it's, it's going to affect poaching, for example, and, and wildlife trade in, in, in un, unpredictable ways. Um, so, yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, gonna, it's one of those factors that's going to have an impact everywhere. So we did a show recently about China's distant fishing fleet in West Africa, particularly focusing on Senegal and Ghana. Uh, Ghana, interestingly enough, is another kind of centerpiece of and, and focal point of illegal Chinese mining, the Galamse, as Kobus, you mentioned earlier in the program in our discussion. Uh, they do have these moments where they crack down, illegal Chinese miners get deported, and then it goes quiet, and then it ramps back up again, and there's another crackdown. It feels very cyclical from what we've seen over the past few years. But it will be interesting to see if Nigeria sets a tone that other countries in West Africa will emulate. Do you get a sense that countries, when they follow each other, they take a lead from one another? Or if Nigeria is cracking down on illegal gold mining, that the Ghanaians may not necessarily follow suit? I think uh, it's difficult for me to say because I don't know enough about about the the inner workings of that of that part of Africa, but it, it seems to me that it it creates a discourse or, or, or it it pushes it pushes certain kind of issues or certain news points into the into the wider discourse, um, and and in that way kind of raises awareness among government officials. But I think it, there are there are many aspects there that we can't see from the outside, including which government officials put put pressure on which other government officials, you know, and like what, what the kind of dynamics are within the ministries. I think that that's an issue that, that I don't know enough about. So distant fishing, illegal gold mining, both environmental issues, but at the same time also governance issues. There's a lot going on here. It's a fascinating topic. Uh, we're going to continue to look at it going forward. Uh, it was such a privilege to be able to speak to to Chinedo and to get a firsthand account of his reporting on the ground. Again, we'll put a link to his investigative reports and also the follow-up tweets that came from the, uh, the federal government as well, who deployed an investigative team to follow up based on his reporting. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. If you'd like to follow up with Kobus or I, it's really super easy. I'm Eric at ChinaAfricaProject.com. And Kobus is Kobus, C-O-U-B-S, at ChinaAfricaProject.com. We answer every email that we get, so please do reach out and stay in touch and let us know. Uh, good, bad, and ugly feedback. We love getting the what you think of the show. Also, if you want to hear from us every single day, 
Uh, Kobus and I put together a daily email newsletter for our subscribers, which offers a very, very deep dive into all the current issues in the China-Africa relationship. In fact, covering issues like uh, Chinedo's report and mining and distant fishing and, and all the ecological sustainability issues are part of it as well. So this is really a, a we're very proud of this work and we'd love for you to support it. Go to ChinaAfricaProject.com slash subscribe. Use the promo code podcast and we'll throw in a, a nice discount for you. So hopefully you'll join our growing community of readers around the world who follow our daily email newsletter. So we'll be back again next week with another show. For Kobus Fenstaden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China and Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com. <laughs>